Mysterious Universe Plus Season 23, Episode 21. Coming up on this show, we've got Dancing DMT Gypsies, NDE Prayer Portals, and Peeking Past the Threshold Guardians. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. You catch your breath there? I thought that Peeking Past the Threshold Guardians was, you know, it needed oomph. It's your story. I presume it's got a lot of oomph behind it. Uh, it's got some It's got some chaffy oomph. I it's will give nothing. you that. It's a little bit. It's, it's a guy not, that had a dream. It's not so much an oomph as opposed to a... So okay. it's kind of... Yeah, it's kind it's of It's like a flaccid... <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a balloon losing air at a children's birthday party. <laughs> it's, well, yeah, yeah. That's, that's how the story ends. It's kind of like that, yeah. No, the story itself that, that that relates to is actually really incredible. And it relates to a story I heard many, many years ago from Graham Hancock. And I cannot find it anywhere. I went searching for it and I can't find it. But... I recall him talking about it at a presentation we went to at, I think it was the University of Sydney or University of New South Wales. About four years ago, five years ago. if not longer. And he was describing some of his, you know, just uh, experiences on DMT. And he fleetingly mentioned, because remember how he was talking about using DMT as a way to get him off marijuana? Remember how he'd said that he'd kind of, he called it the green bitch because he'd become not addicted, but so enamored with marijuana that he... He was addicted. Yeah, he was addicted. And, (laughs) you know, DMT helped him get off it. But he fleetingly made this comment about interacting with the entities in the DMT realm. And one thing that happened to Graham Hancock, and I remember this so vividly, is he said that when he took the substance and he was interacting with the beings there, they said to him, oh, you're mine now. And he remembered being relaxed because he's like, oh, well, yeah, but only for 12 minutes. So however long, you know, the DMT trip takes... But he also was talking about some of the other dangers that can come with interacting with the beings in this reality and some of the drawbacks. And he said that there was a, a shaman, and I don't know where the shaman was, but there was a shaman whose reality in, well, life in this reality had been destroyed by his interactions with the beings in the other reality when he utilized DMT. And what it was is that he got a divorce in this reality because he had a wife and kids in the DMT world. Oh, wow. And I was like... That's like fairy folklore. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and so... Having a a selkie wife or some kind of fairy wife on the other side. Yeah, so his wife in this reality, it must have pushed her to the point where she's like, no, I'm not having any of that, and, and dumps this guy. So I couldn't find it, but it ties in with this really incredible story that I found from Shane Moss, the comedian, who uh, has had a similar experience that I want to go into. But before we do, what have you got coming up? I, I ended up going into this book from Andy Rotman called Hungry Ghosts. And Rotman is he's a translator of ancient Sanskrit. He goes and finds ancient Sanskrit stories specifically related to Buddhism. And I wanted to find the origin of these hungry ghost stories. Mm-hmm. The idea that when someone passes away, if the right uh, veneration isn't done for the spirit, then they're trapped in this earthly realm, but they can't satiate themselves. They're like a roaming yeah. spirit. Does this relate to this idea, though, that you have to satiate them by leaving out offerings for them? Well, actually, going into the very early writings from the Buddhist perspective from Rotman in these very you know ancient Sanskrit texts, it's all got to do with karma. Oh. And there's this template of, of a story that gets repeated over time. And it's basically surrounding one of uh, the Buddha's disciples who goes into deep meditation and sees this hungry ghost. And the description of the hungry ghost from the ancient Sanskrit is really fascinating. It basically sounds like Bigfoot. Like, really? <laughs> like the hungry ghost is this horrible 
hairy, naked beast. Like, like you've been transformed into this starving beast and all you can do is just slowly roam throughout the netherworld uh, starving and in pain. Sometimes they're on fire. Sometimes they're eating feces. And every every time they go up to a tree that's covered in fruit, they'll reach out to try and eat the fruit and the tree will just die in front of them. Oh, how awful. So it, had, it really had the, the veneration of the ancestors was something that was added in later on in places like China. But the original Hungry Ghost stories were all about these um, karmic lessons because the, the disciple of Buddha would go to the the hungry ghost and basically say, what happened to you? Like, <laughs> what, what did you do to have this horrible punishment? And then the hungry ghost would say, go to your Lord and he'll explain it. And then if more people hear the story, they won't be in the same position I'm in. So is it like a karmic lesson for other people? Is that how it works? That's the whole point of the stories. They're, they're karmic lessons. Uh, but the, most of them, once I figured out the template, I'll tell them at the end of the show, but once I figured out the template, I realized it's kind of like Hollywood just rebooting movies every 10 years, like yeah, movie right. franchises. It's the same story told over and over again, except that the lesson is just slightly different every time. I like that though. And that's what a lot of these old sort of fables and, and texts describe. It's the same kind of thing, but there's like this moral behind the story. Mm. It's supposed to encourage people to behave you know, in a righteous way so that they don't end up being, you know, for example, in this case, a hungry ghost. But because they were the same story, just told 20, over and over 20 different ways yeah. with a different person each time, I, I actually went into a different book called We Touched Heaven, an international collection of experiences that reached beyond the veil. And in the introduction to this book, it's from uh, Claudia, Claudia Watts Edge. She says, I've included accounts of afterlife communication through dreams and near-death experiences and through the wonders of life-changing experiences, spiritually transformative experiences, while hunting, while behind the wheel of a car, while on the toilet, or simply by taking a walk. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hang on, back up a bit. (laughs) I was going to stop you as well. Hang on, hang on. I get maybe the hunting, taking a walk maybe, but on the toilet? (laughs) What? Who has had... A spiritually transformative experience on the toilet. Well, I suppose it depends <laughs> on how constipated you are, doesn't it? Like, it was was it one of those sessions where it just comes out so smooth? <laughs> Stop! And it, it enters the toilet bowl like one of those Olympic divers and there's barely a splash. Yeah, and they're called phantom wipes. <laughs> yeah, and there's no, there's no need to wipe because it all just came out so perfectly and it's like, oh, you have Is this... Is the toilet glowing? Your consciousness ascends to a higher dimension because of this toilet... Exp- what is going on? Uh, and... I, I went into the book specifically to find that story. Okay. All so right. that's coming up later. I'm looking forward to that coming up. Let's jump back to uh, this incredible story that comes from Shane Moss. But before we do that, I wanted to talk about something that you know, it grabbed my attention because I was thinking immediately about uh, Graham Hancock and that experience and that he described. And I thought, oh, I'll just go and check out his website. And fleetingly, I just happened to notice that he'd uh, reposted an article about Mike Tyson, of all people, describing their experiences or his experiences with magic mushrooms and how it actually saved his life. And I recall a little while back that Mike Tyson had done an interview where he was talking about you know, some of the um, traumatic you know, elements that had happened in his upbringing and how he had low self-esteem, which is amazing considering who Mike Tyson is and the big guy that he is that he had. You know, and it's funny how you, you find this. People that seem to be the most strongest on the outside have these you know, underlying stresses that have occurred through their lives. But he was talking about uh, taking the toad 
And what it was is that there was the utilization of uh, you know hallucinogenic substances from toads that he had started using. And after he'd taken this substance, it had completely changed his uh, view of, of reality. And he said, you know, he had all these perceptions of, you know, money and fame and women and all this kind of stuff. And he said when he took this substance, as we hear in so many experiences, it, it meant nothing. Like that wasn't happiness. He said that was not happiness. He says where happiness is is where I am now. And it came through from this transformative interpersonal experience that he had while taking these drugs. And I thought, okay, this is kind of, you know, a cool thing to hear. And you hear this, you know, quite a lot with people that say, you know, they go and they take DMT or they take this, you know, toad substance or they go they and... go to the toilet. Or they go to the toilet, exactly. They have these transformative experiences which can make people wanting to, uh, you know, change their lives rapidly and dramatically, you know, uh, very appealing for them to take substances like DMT, psilocybin. So the latest thing that, that Mike Tyson's talking about is that he's actually uh, working with a group that are trying to make psilocybin legal. They're trying to make it that you can utilize it for therapy. And I can understand why. I mean, you hear so many of these experiences. He said he was actually almost suicidal at one point in his life. And after he experienced the ego death, like the breaking down of that ego of who you are uh, in this reality, he says everything has changed. So they're working together to try and bring psilocybin forward as this uh, treatment through the FDA which I think is actually a really great idea. And they're saying they could use it for traumatic brain injuries. And there's a lot of research going on at the moment that, you know, you and I have spoken about in the past, Ben, that suggests that, yeah, absolutely, this can have, you know, great uh, impact upon people that are suffering from injuries and psychological trauma. Agreed. However, like all substances, you have to be very careful with these drugs that you put into your body. And yes, they have this appeal. They seem to have this appeal of, well, you know, if I'm suffering from depression or any type of psychiatric illness, that I can simply fly off to Peru, find a shaman somewhere, take a bit of ayahuasca and have everything cleansed and solved. And that's not always the case. It doesn't always work that way. And in fact, some people can have very unsettling experiences when they use these substances that damage them further, you know, don't resolve the issue that they have and they continue to persist even further going forward or in fact make them a lot worse. You know, some examples, you know, uh, one was being described by Nick Redfern, and I thought this was really great. There are people that take substances like DMT or ayahuasca, and when they take the substance, they interact with things that really shouldn't, well, they don't seem to have a positive effect. I mean, there was one example that came forward that there was, um, in the 1960s, there was a really famous, well, a voiceover actor, I shouldn't say really famous, but a voiceover actor known as Peter Beckman, and if you recall, Ben, Peter Beckman was listening to the soundtrack for the, the movie Rosemary's Baby, and he says as he had taken this substance, it wasn't DMT, it was mescaline that he'd taken. He says that for some reason, he realized that men in black walked into his house, and he said they were dressed as square Eisenhower era kind of, you know, cop-looking, FBI-looking men oh, yeah, that just came story. in. And remember they sat on the couch? Yeah. And he said that they were pale and sticky, and their clothes were just hanging off them. They were hanging off this bony structure frame that they had. And he said they actually looked like they were going to expire at any moment. They appeared to be having trouble breathing. And in his mind, while he was under the influence of this substance, he said that they even seemed to have trouble just being, like being there. And he said the memory itself actually disappeared. Like it just, it went for some reason and it only came back years and years later. And this is something that I've read you know, on many people that have had these experiences, there was a, a guy on Reddit by the name of T-Man19, and he said that, well, he called it hyperspace that he'd been in. 
but very much like Peter's experience. He said that he had taken DMT, and it seems like he'd done it a couple of times. And he said, this time was different when he took DMT. And he said, I, he hit it, and he laid down, and as soon as he closed his eyes, he said these entities started dancing around him, looking for him. And he said they were like snakes at first, but he said then the entities became even more disturbing. He said these men showed up, and they were wearing sunglasses. Now, he doesn't appear to have knowledge of the men in black phenomena. This guy is just describing his experiences with drugs, not, you know, paranormal phenomena. But he said these men in black showed up almost like they were, you know, the kind that, uh, you know, were very unsettling and disturbing, except they were trying to feed him something. He said they were trying to get him to open his mouth so they could pour something into his mouth, much like the fey folk legends that we hear about these entities trying to get you to eat something, trying to consume something. The Pleiadians turning up with the... A test tube vial full of pink liquid saying, drink this. Yeah, drink this. Take this substance on. But why? Why do they want to do that? So, um, you know, I can... So they can rape you, obviously. (laughs) I don't know. Well, maybe psychologically. I mean, maybe you're right. Maybe there is something to that. And, you know, I continued looking because I wanted to understand, you know, what people have described with these men in black. And Nick says, look, I've got three cases of people who have encountered men in black while they've been on DMT. Like three, and then that doesn't seem like a lot of cases, but it's such a niche type of story to have three cases of people being on substances but seeing men in black show up. I think this is more than an archetype, and I think that archetype is kind of a throwaway concept anyway. I was reading about Jungian archetypes today, and there are you know multitudes of different kinds. You know, the shadow is one one good example, and I've heard some people say about you know, the depictions of men in black showing up in these experiences that this is like the shadow of your ego of the dark side. I'm like, no, no, I don't, I don't think it's that. Speaking of archetypes, did you come across the Azazel, Azriel stuff no. today? Remember the book from David Luke, Other Worlds? Oh, yes. Yeah, and yeah. he started to piece together that people on DMT and psilocybin, they had reached this threshold in another dimension. And there was a a guardian there. People had reported encounters with some kind of being that wouldn't let people beyond a certain level. There was yep. like a, a gate, a, a, guardian a guardian of the gateway. Yep. And it was an entity often described as having these multiple eyeballs. Remember this? Yes, I cannot. Yeah, cannot Azazel, Azrael, uh, people reported seeing it under psilocybin, under DMT. Yep. The multiple eyes uh, was... It's like all-knowing, all-seeing. Well, it was also linked to Tibetan artwork of the the various guardians, uh, Azar Rahu, for example, yep. this Tibetan guardian. I look at the multitude that, of the faces. A guardian at the threshold with the same eyes co- covering it. Yep. It, it's, it really seemed to be that there were these uh, real tangible entities that stop the consciousness of human beings yes. and perhaps others from seeing what they shouldn't see. Yeah, well, I was wondering about that because I do have a story that, that ties in with that a little bit. It's not the same thing described by David, but I think it's the same uh, entity, like preventing people from moving up. And this is one thing that's been put forward. Are the men in black, is it just an, a new uh, phenotype mm. for what this being is, for yeah. preventing people from well, moving up? If you think about the purpose of that Azazel entity, it's to stop people from looking beyond the threshold. And what do men in black do? Yeah. They, they want to stop people from looking into UFOs. They want to, uh, you know, block people's awareness of, of this area. They intimidate them not to talk about it, to make yeah. sure they don't spread the word in society. You know, I thought about it the other day, though. I really find men in black to be the Streisand effect. Like, it really is. These odd-looking men show up at your door and they're like, don't talk about this. By the way, here, I've got to melt a coin. <laughs> you know, what do you think yeah, is going to happen? True. 
people, like, I think that the men in black now, I'm wondering if it's not so much, maybe in, in psychedelic realms, maybe they are preventing you from crossing over. But I think in actual people describing the UFO experiences, when they just see a light in the sky in some circumstances and these guys show up, I think it's like the Streisand effect. They're trying on purpose to rattle you so that you end up talking about it more and spreading the stuff out. I mean, that's just my two cents. But, you know, Nick actually said in one of the experiences that apparently the men in black were surprised that the DMT user could see them. It's like they were caught out for yeah. a moment that they'd somehow been able to cross a level of the threshold. But talking about threshold beings, I came across a similar story today, actually. And I don't know how much they've been influenced by possibly David's work. And this comes from the Arrowid website, which, you know, is a website where people get in there and talk about their experiences when they've undertaken, you know, numerous uh, hallucinogenic substances. And um, one of them was describing their experiences with DMT. And this guy said that he was transported to this extremely alien-like realm. But he said, even though it was alien, it felt familiar as well because he'd been there so many times before. And he said, every time he went there, he felt like he was being schooled in existence. He said, this teacher entity would show up and funnily enough, though, this teacher entity seemed to be quite condescending. It was kind of like, oh, you're here again. Okay, well, we're going to teach you about reality. This is a hyperdimensional quantum cube. Yeah, exactly. This yeah. is where we begin. Yeah, it's, it was really condescending. And he said that I would listen to this being, but I was actually quite skeptical about it. But it knew that I was being skeptical about it. So I kind of kept on playing this game with him. But he said this entity was persistent about trying to convince him about its power. And he's just like, okay. <laughs> Good on him. Yep. That's the attitude you yeah. should have. Well, that's true. And he said, look, he remained neutral on this matter. He was conscientious and courteous to this this entity, but he was also, and I think that's good because, you know, only recently, Ben, we've described how it's so dangerous dealing with low-level beings. You know, if you take these substances hoping to have a, you know, a transformative spiritual or religious experience, and all of a sudden you hit a whole heap of beings that will just give you whatever you want, sometimes you've got to be, you know, beware the gifts that are being given you, yeah. like what are these things exactly. doing? So you're right, you know, having this kind of neutral mindset towards it is helpful. But he said on one particular occasion, when he had this neutral kind of approach, he said to his right side, he doesn't know how, but he said there was this blue mass that was kind of just bobbing up and down next to him. And he said it was bejeweled with these crystals. And he said it had these geometric fault lines that folded and twisted and morphed in this mechanical fashion, but it was still like biological at the same time. And he said this thing was just kind of moving. And he said it was basically like an amniotic sac. It was like... Yeah. moving over to, oh, it's also got tentacles, so it gets worse. So he says this thing moves over towards him, trying to make some contact with him. And he says he makes contact with it. And he said it goes from blue to like green to this yellow color inside his sack, but then back to blue. And he said somehow when he was absorbed into this thing, he found himself floating in this three-dimensional space. And he said nothing significant was happening. But he said then he found that inside this being was this very advanced extraterrestrial being that was capable of moving into the DMT realm. And he said while he was here, this being said that they liked humanity and they enjoyed, enjoyed helping humans evolve at this very fast rate. So he said, you oh, know... thanks. Yeah, exactly. So he says to this being, he's like, um, okay, thanks for helping me evolve. Yeah. And this being is like, okay. And then what it started doing is it was kind of guiding him. And he said... Whenever something popped up, it's like he was moving. And he said, whenever something popped up, this being would just kind of nudge him and say, ah, don't look at that. That's not useful to you. That's not good for you. You have to look back at this. 
And he said that he could actually sense a weakness in himself. And it was like this being was trying to fill up this hole or solve this weakness that he had. And he said, ultimately, he gets to this point where he's having this interaction with this being. And he says, it's a very, he just, for some reason, even though he's always been neutral with this stuff, for some reason, it was a very positive experience that he was feeling. And he said, ahead of him, just out of nowhere, this being just kept on pushing him forward and forward and forward. He said, the being was pushing him towards this thing in the distance. And as he gets closer, he sees it's this ludicrous, concentric, mandala-like disco thing, which is just spinning, like spinning in front of him. And it's got, he said, it's like a Technicolor dream coat. And he said it was all kind of like got these um, antennae around the outside and it's surrounded by this ultraviolet aura. And he said somehow he realized that this thing was alive. This other being was pushing him towards this thing. And he got the impression that this was actually a sentinel. Like it was a guardian of the threshold. And he says all of a sudden as he realizes this, these tentacles all come out of this thing and they're made of like these crystal kind of things. It's all very cliche about That's That's what they describe in David Luke's book. Oh, look at that. DMT brain imaging study participant draws the following injection and it's exactly what you're describing. Wow. It's this creature with a giant eye in the middle, but all these tentacles flying off with this crystalline landscape at the back. That's that's what they describe, this, wow. this sentinel guardian at the threshold. That's what, uh, if you pierce enough realms of DMT, you eventually run into him. Yeah, it's the same thing. there's no way past. Well, he doesn't describe eyes, funnily enough. He just says that it's like a mandala-like geometric kind of thing. But you're right, with these things coming out and these tentacles, it's exactly the same as what you've that picture you showed me there, Ben. But he said that he was trying to look past this thing, and he said he managed just to kind of like just look around it. He says, as he looks around, he can see, and this is what's behind the threshold. And I've always been like, I kind of want to know. I want to know what's behind the threshold. I mean, this is amazing. He's like, I got a glimpse of several entities moving around a giant complex with a control panel. They were kind of humanoid. It wasn't that crystal clear. They're pulling levers. (laughs) Like, great. So it's a bunch of workers pulling levers. Isn't that, who is it? What's the Indian deity that is apparently at the center of the earth pulling levers? Is it... uh, I can't actually remember, but isn't I think there's like an Indian belief that there's there's like a a Hindu entity yeah, that's pulling yeah, levers. It's pulling levers. And I'm thinking, is that? <laughs> All right, I'm going to Google that as you talk. Yeah, look into that. So he's like, yeah, he thought that this control panel was the control panel for the entire universe. He said he realized that he was viewing God Central, like it's this unbidden place, you know, what they they shouldn't go into, um, or forbidden place. I'm sorry, but yeah, I thought, okay, that's that's kind of cool, but also a little bit of a letdown that we're waiting to see what's beyond the the threshold, and we see that. Prithvi, the Hindu earth goddess. Oh, there you go. I don't know if that's if she's pulling levers. Maybe it's like a, a switchboard and she's just down there <laughs> working nonstop. No, I have seen depictions of it, though, of them like pulling levers before. So I mean, it's, it's strange that he would see something like that. Um, but look, there's a whole heap of experiences, you know, that, that people have that can be positive as well. Um, you know, I was, I was saying before about some of the, the drawbacks of, of what could happen with these things. Uh, I was reading about people that encounter spiders when they have these, these experiences. And one of them, this person believed that they'd been encountering ayahuasca demons. It's very rare that you hear these things, but there was one woman that described that she'd taken ayahuasca and she was actually, a, you know, a, apparently a reputable, you know, shaman or with, you know, this reputable group. And she'd taken DMT. And as she's lying there and the, the drug starts taking effect, she says this black smoke just seemed to kind of come out of the jungle. And as it came out of the jungle, it starts trying to climb into her and trying to climb into her throat and penetrate into her. And she said, 
somehow it did. Somehow it, it penetrated through not just her actual physical orifices. It actually got into her, you know, psychically. And she said once she was in, once these things were inside, she said it was three demons. And these three demons, she said they were basically forcing her to be stuck in this type of hell. And all she could hear was this crying. And she said when she came out of it, she could still hear these things growling in her ear. She said it was the darkest entity that she'd ever picked up. And she said she carried it through through her life. And it was the worst thing. And she felt like she'd actually lost her connection to to spirituality. She'd gone there to try and enhance it. And this thing had gotten in. And these three demons apparently had gotten in. Ultimately, I mean... What's that old saying that... I wouldn't, you wouldn't go a thousand, you would go a thousand years without, without learning the Tao, but you wouldn't practice Foxcraft for a single day. It's yeah, like right. the idea that if you take that wrong turn, it just takes one instance to, and you're ruined. Yeah. And that seemingly is what happened here. Apparently she underwent some type of, um, exorcism with some high priest and I don't know whether or not it, it worked, but you know, it's like taking these substances while they can be very positive and very healing. Uh, it does leave you vulnerable. It leaves you vulnerable to these things, and it's not always a positive experience. You know, there was another experience where I was saying with spiders that um, some woman says that she had gone through the purging process, and hers did end up being positive, but she claims that she already had a demon inside her that she'd picked up from previous drug usage or drug abuse, and she'd gone down and taken ayahuasca to try and help her get over it. And when she purged, and this is really gross, she says as she's purging and throwing up, and it just looks like normal vomit, until all of a sudden she's like vomiting and she says she vomits and this leg kind of comes out the corner of her mouth. Yeah. And then this massive spider like she <coughs> pulls this thing <laughs> oh, out God. and it kind of like on the ground. Does it scuttle away? Yeah, and it takes off. <laughs> Gross. And she said that later on when she checked the toilet, people were like, other people, like why is there a dead black spider in the toilet? Uh. So it was like it had become... It had gone from being a spiritual, non-physical, non-material thing. Cultivated a physical to form. To being physical. That other people that weren't under the influence of anything could actually see. But after that, she claims that the bad energy had actually gone with that spider and she was back to completely completely normal. Um, so in that circumstance, it's a, a pretty good thing. But what it brings me to is that um, I want to point you in the direction of uh, Shane Moss. He's a comedian and he's had some pretty unusual experiences. And I, I found this TV series called Tales from the Trip. And uh, I'll link to it in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. It's just these short clips. I think it's on Comedy Central, but it's just these short clips of people that have had experiences with different types of substances. And for the most part, they're kind of like what you'd expect. I mean, um, there was a guy by the name of Duncan Trussell. He's a comedian as well, I believe. He had had an experience where he'd gone to Burning Man, he claims, with his, uh, his, his, maybe his manager. And just before he'd gone there, apparently he leant down and took an entire rail of ketamine. And he said that was really, really dumb because first of all, he didn't really understand how much he was taking. And he said, even today, like there could be fentanyl. Like it's, it's a dumb thing to do. But he took this entire rail of, of ketamine and when he did, he looks up and this guy is like, see you later, man. And he's like, that wasn't a good sign. He's like, this is this is not good. And <laughs> as he, in, you're going on a trip you're now. You're going on a massive right, trip. See you in three days. <laughs> yeah, and he claims that he walked out the tent with his manager. And uh, he sat down with his manager and, his, and he was just saying, oh, you know, I want to show you Burning Man. I want to take you around. And his manager says, yeah, okay, you know, come on, we'll, we'll go for a walk. And he says he can't move. He says he realizes that his, his legs are now stone. Like his legs have actually turned to stone. And for this, I mean, he doesn't really have a psychedelic experience, but he says that um, 
his it was kind of funny because time just stopped and every single moment he could think clearly and normally a completely normal pace like you're thinking now and like I'm talking to you right now but he said every single moment took six hours this is his perception everything was six hours and he had all this time to think (laughs) and the entire time as he's gone he's just thinking oh my god I've done this in front of my manager I'm gonna lose my my agreement my contract with him I'm done and he said that while he was there processing these thoughts and thinking quickly and saying, oh, what am I going to do? I know. He said all that was coming out of his voice was, uh, <laughs> to his manager. <laughs> and he says that they all, he fell down into the sand and the group that he was with, that all taken this stuff as well. And they were all there. Seemingly, I don't know if he means that they were communicating telepathically, but he says that they're all kind of talking, but he says to everyone else on the outside, it's all the same. All you could hear is all these people just go, <laughs> just uh, groaning. Yeah. But they're all having an eloquent conversation yeah. in their heads. Yeah, apparently at one point, though, he did yell out, I'm trying to keep the universe alive. <laughs> but then it all ended fine for him because he ended up coming out of this K-hole and he goes and he, sa- he talks to his manager afterwards. And apparently he's like, oh, I'm really sorry that I did that in front of you. And he's like, I've worked with comedians for years. Like, that's yeah, that's nothing. I haven't seen worse yeah, than that's, that. Yeah, that's nothing. But, um, you know, that that led me into a story about, you know, um, Shane's experiences. And, you know, Shane is the same kind of person. I didn't realize, like, his story is is quite fascinating. He runs a podcast. They talk about science. They talk about comedy. Um, but he was saying, I, I was reading this interview with him. And this is a really good example of just how dangerous this stuff can be. So he's talking about the fact that he was actually taking substances like this. I don't know if it was DMT alone or if it was a multitude of other substances, but he'd been taking these hallucinogenic substances for 22 years, right? 22 years consuming these substances. (laughs) What could go wrong? He ended up in a psychiatric facility. The guy had a complete and utter detachment from reality. What, everything was going fine for the first 21 years? Well, I don't know. By year 22, he just snapped? Look, I think what happened with him from this interview I was reading, and this is what you hear from from so many people that end up getting into to drug addiction problems, is that uh, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And uh, I think he had other, you know, I don't, don't know if it was depression or anxiety, but he'd been utilizing these substances to manage the symptoms right. of these things. So he'd been undiagnosed for so long. And you know, for him, the outcome was really positive because at least finally, even though he was detached from reality, he was diagnosed and was able to treat these things, but he can't take these substances anymore. He can't go on these things anymore because it could obviously interfere with lithium or whatever substance that he's on, whatever psychiatric drug that he's on, um, and could actually cause him to have trouble in this reality. And I thought, you know, that's really important to keep in mind when you hear his story. So his story, and this must have obviously happened before he'd had this breakdown or this this complete detachment from reality. It relates to about the 20th time that he'd taken DMT. And he says that uh, he'd, he'd been taking DMT and he'd been interacting with these beings every time he went in there. And he says every time he went into this dimension, this DMT space, these beings would try and like shove all this information into him, like all this important, vital, you know, outstanding information into him. And he says that every time he came back, he could never remember it. And this is what we hear with these experiences so many times. You had these profound, you know, um, absolutions and understandings of the nature of reality. And then when you come out of it, you're like, what? Well, what happened? And he said that ultimately it got to the point where it was the 19th time that he was in this space. And he says to the beings, okay, look, it's really cool that you're giving me this information, but I think most of it's in my head. Can you do something? Can you show, demonstrate somehow that this isn't in my head? 
that this is somewhere else. And the beings say, sure, yep, okay. And then that's it. He leaves. Now, when he goes back in for the 20th time, he said it was roughly the 20th time that he'd taken DMT. He says this time he finds himself in a 1950s kitchen with this boy sitting at a table. And he says he has, like, the boy is clearly upset. And he says he doesn't know, but he thinks that the boy is him. And he says he knows that there's a father there, and the father is trying to tell him something. There's something important that the father has to tell him, but the father doesn't know how to say it to him. And he says as he's viewing this scene from this third-person kind of view, he says the entire set of the kitchen collapses, and the place becomes this movie set. And he says, you know, as he's on this, this movie set... It's kind of like this metaphor to demonstrate that, you know, everything around us is, it's all, you know, different and it's all, um, it's like the set, it's not real and that the entire universe is around us. And he says everything around him on this set, you know, like being fictional, it's like it's not the real reality. He says it's all ripped open. And he says as it rips open, there's this purple fabric behind it and he's sucked into the purple fabric, like it pulls him in. And he says as soon as he's sucked into this purple fabric, he finds himself on the other side. He doesn't know exactly where he is, but he says this is some type of portal or, or gateway somehow. And he says he's once again with this guy who's now a grown-up, and he thinks that this guy who is a grown-up is him as well. But this guy is working to maintain the portal or the gateway. This is his job. <laughs> and he says while he's with this guy, they're trying to figure out how to keep the portal open. He says, as this is going on, he says it kind of ends. He doesn't know how he ends up here, but he finds himself at this carnival. And at this carnival, he says, there's a Ferris wheel. And it's really important to, to note these details, but he says, there's a Ferris wheel. There's a guy playing a piano. And, um, you know, it's all this kind of scene. And with the archetypes, you know, what, where this does kind of tie in, Jungian archetypes refer to the tricksters, the gestures. And I thought, you know, considering this guy is suffering from um, bipolar, he may not have known at the time that he was suffering from it. The one thing that Jungian archetypes talk about is like the gesture is, and comedy is healing. Like there's some type of healing yeah. going on. So, And it's commonly described, you know, many people like Graham Hancock have described that when they go into these DMT locations, that it is kind of like a carnival, carnival atmosphere that's occurring. So I just thought that was just an interesting note that, you know, people that, you know, are disconnected from each other, that don't know each other, but they're describing these same scenes that they're entering into. But he says, as he's there with this Ferris wheel, he says, this woman appears from nowhere. And he says, it's a purple dancing gypsy lady. And immediately, he doesn't know her name, but immediately he recognizes her. He knows her. And all these memories and this knowledge oh, no. starts flushing, you know, flooding back. And he has spent hundreds, if not thousands of lifetimes with this purple gypsy woman. Thousands of lifetimes. And she's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Oh, my God, it's you. I'm so happy to see you. And he says, you know, he gets this impression that he's like, I don't have to worry. Like uh, all the you know, concerns and worries that we have in this, is, in this mortal reality, mm. it doesn't matter because, you know, here's this other side and he's understanding the, the true nature of reality. Is it just that his gypsy lover hasn't incarnated with him this time around? This, yeah, that's what it seems to be, right? And that we get more of an insight into that later on because he says he spends some time with her but somehow, even though it felt like an extremely long time there, and we know that you know time you know, has different perceptions and it's relative, he says that um, somehow the entity knows, this gypsy knows that the DMT is wearing off. And so she starts getting sad. And he's, but she's like, don't worry. And she explodes in, right in front of him into these fractals of colors that become bats and that become everything in the universe. And then it's like he becomes part of it and he's kind of you know, caught up with it. And the final thing is this gypsy, this purple gypsy, 
like looks straight into his face and she's like, see ya. And then gone, right? <laughs> now he comes out of it and he's, he's come out of the experience. Very deep and meaningful. Really deep and meaningful, right? And he's like, it was weird, but weird stuff happens on DMT all the time. So, you know, he doesn't think too much of it. And there's nothing really insightful in this. I mean, it is amazing that he's crossed into this other location and maybe, you know, gained some understanding of, of what could be the nature of reality and then this being that he's connected to, maybe a soulmate. He doesn't really know. Later, though, uh, he teams up with a friend and he says to his friend, look, do you want to try DMT? And his friend's like, yeah, 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 I've, I've, I've never tried DMT. I, I want to give it a go. So we don't know the name of his friend. I, I, I have a suspicion as to who it may be, but we don't know the name of his friend. And he actually says, like Sean says, I don't tell him anything about my experiences because I don't want to color his experiences. I don't want to influence him in any way. And so he says, his friend takes a hit of, of DMT and he says, look, just smoke this and keep smoking it for as long as you can. And apparently his friend just takes a bit too much. His friend ends up taking eight to 10 hits of this DMT. Like he really should have taken one to two, maybe three. And his friend sits back and immediately he starts going, I've had too much. I've had too much. I've had too much. And he keeps on saying it. And, you know, Sean claims that he says this for about a minute and a half. This guy's sitting there going, I've had too much. I've had too much. I've had. Oh, oh, they really love you here. And Shane's like, yeah, yeah, of course. Like, yeah, it's like when you go there, you feel love and you feel, you know, just pure energy and it's, it's wonderful. And his friend's like, no, they really love you here. And he says, what, what are you talking about? And by that point, his, his friend's gone, right? Now his friend comes back from the experience. And when he comes back, he's like, there's a purple gypsy lady who told me to tell you that she cares a lot about you. And he's like, hey, you got a second. And his friend goes even further, right? It goes even more crazy. His friend says that, um, look, I'm, um, I was in this carnival and he said, I find myself in this carnival and there's a Ferris wheel wow. and there was a guy playing a piano and all of a sudden this woman appears and she gives me this message to give to you. He also says that earlier on in the experience when he first went in, he said, and we hear this in the DMT realm, he said, these mechanical elves were everywhere. He's like, when he first went in, these mechanical elves were running around and he was, they were scared of, or sorry, he was scared of them. They were scared of him. It was all really bad until... One of them um, peeks out and says, is that Shane? And apparently the guy, that the friend that had taken the DMT, is like, oh yeah, you guys know Shane? And apparently these machine elves all just kind of swarmed out. We're like, <laughs> oh yeah, he comes here all the time. He's a really, he's a really great guy. He's Friend he's, of a friend. Yeah, he's a friend of a friend. Like he's just really, really great. So um, he ends up saying, and so he obviously comes out of this experience to get this validation. Like this validation is crazy. Um, but one thing I was thinking was, is it possible, though, that rather than him actually entering into a real place, mm. is it that some type of weird telepathy is going on that he's picking up on, you know, still strange and, and you know, a superhuman that he's picking up on it, but is he somehow picking up on the visions or are they going to the same place? And I tend to probably, I mean, I'm only saying that to give it some skeptical balance, I suppose, but I think that he probably is going to a place because this place has been described by so many people over so many decades of, of DMT research. And, you know, um, it's a logical conclusion. When people I start so. describing the same things yeah. and well, describing interacting with the same type of beings, same looking beings, they come back with the same information. Yeah. They're going somewhere. Look, the argument is sometimes, and this is where we come back to archetypes, that this is something that is hardwired into us. So we'll all see the same things, but I don't buy that. I don't buy that you'll, uh, maybe you'll see the same forms, but to see some purple gypsy lady show yeah. up and say, hey, talk to my soulmate for me. 
that's a lot more than it just being simply an archetype or something that's been generated from your own consciousness or from your own mind. Remember Dick Sutphin, who I covered on the last show mm-hmm. with all his uh, past life regression stuff? Remember his wife, Tara? Yeah. She started to channel her guides and her previous lives. Her guide eventually came through and told Richard that they had incarnated together uh, 13,552 times wow. and he had had 53,042 lifetimes upon Earth. So he'd had a lot more lifetimes without her? Is that what he's yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. So, and he, his whole thing was, like, how, could, how could I have that many lives on Earth? That means that the amount of civilizations that have, must have come and gone on this planet and been destroyed is almost yeah. uncountable. Unless, though, he's describing what we were talking about with the, the parallel egos or the mm. parallel lives that exist in the same, but just, you know, a different yeah, countries, a different, different zip code. Yeah, um, you know, but and keeping in mind what happened to Shane having this breakdown, he can't go back. Shane says they ended up seeing this purple gypsy, five, this purple gypsy woman five or six more times. And he says he doesn't know her name, but apparently she gets jealous of his girlfriends from this reality. And, you know, now obviously that he can't, you know, go there anymore, it's almost like he's been slightly separated. But it seems like these beings... Um, because they they can see the nature of reality, time is irrelevant to them. They don't care. So maybe I don't think she's missing him. But I thought it was funny that she was getting jealous of him. What's she time. doing in the DMT realm, though? I don't Dancing. trust it. I don't trust I know. any of it. I know. When do you run into a dead relative in the DMT realm? Oh, quite a lot, apparently. Really? Yeah, quite a lot. Isn't it just like weird reptilians and machine elves and no, apparently, cuboid creatures? That, well, that is all there. But no, <laughs> Guardians there are, of the threshold. There you never run into grandma in the... In the in the DMT no, I, I realm. Haven't heard people what are you doing bar. here, Aaron? I told you not to take drugs and look what's happened to you. <laughs> now you're stuck in the DMT realm with all these elves. <laughs> yeah. Now there's one more story that I want to mention that I think is, is actually kind of cool because it shows the multidimensional nature of our reality and uh, certainly from the perspective of, of taking these substances and how, you know, again, this is a warning as to why it can be dangerous because you can end up in another dimension and you may not find your way out. So this is the story of uh, Roman Nager. And um, he took three hits of DMT. He was with Shane, right? And I wonder if this is the guy. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I think it's probably the guy that had this experience. Uh, I mean, I may have misheard it, but I think he's the guy. But he says that he took three hits of DMT, and he ends up being able to see past and future lives. And the way that it's all kind of uh, shown to him, he says, like, these chameleon entities appear, and the chameleon entities do things like like... One of them unfurls its tongue and licks his eyeball as this kind of like, and it's not, it's not nasty. It's just kind of like, this is the control that we have. This is the abilities that we have, but it's also kind of um, jovial and fun at the same time. And he says that he gets to this point where all of his lifetimes are all like strips of film, you know, like as in, you know, movie film, there's all these massive strips of film everywhere and he can climb them. And he says he's climbing up them. And as he's climbing up these strips of film, he gets to the top and he can see all this film around him and each and every one is one of his lifetimes. You know, whether it's the past, the future, it doesn't matter. And he says that he gets to the top and he's looking around. He's like, I don't know how to get back. Like, I don't, I don't know where to go. I don't know which film to jump into to, to get myself oh, back crap. to the reality, right? And so this voice comes out of nowhere. And I don't know if he actually sees it, if it's one of these chameleon things or, or what happens, but... He says, this voice kind of says to him, well, you just tell us where you want to go and we'll take you there. And he's like, well, I want to go back. Like, I've taken this substance. I want to go back to where I've taken the substance. And apparently this voice says to him, yeah, that's fine. Like, we know exactly where you are. You're with Shane. You're in, you know, whatever city or town you're in. I think it was a city. And uh, yeah, we can get you back. Now, let me ask you, are you in the living room 
or are you in the recording studio? And he's like, oh, yeah, um, I'm in the recording studio. Yep, I'm in the recording studio. And he says he comes back, right? And he comes out of the experience. He's back in the recording studio. And Shane's just sitting there, just like grinning at him. And he realizes when he came back, he's like, hang on a second. No, I, I got that wrong. When I left, I started smoking this in the living room. So somehow when these beings had returned him, that actually returned him to the reality where he started smoking in the recording studio and not in the living room. Uh-oh. It had dropped him back into the wrong reality because he'd made a mistake. Uh-oh. But how apparently somehow Shane knew. So I don't know whether or not Shane was under the influence and was able to see what was going on, but he was just smiling at him. But yeah, I thought that was really cool how it had kind of played this trick on him. In the book, We Touched Heaven, which I'm going to be describing coming up, there was a story which was so lame I didn't include it because it was so short. But it's basically a, a woman who, for some reason, she has this altered state of consciousness. I can't remember if she has a stroke or she faints, something medically happens to her. And she wakes up in the kitchen of her family home, but it's an alternate dimension. And the, re the reason she knows it's an ultimate dimension is because her parents are still alive. Mm. In our reality, her parents had died like 20 years ago, but her parents are there. They're quite elderly. And she's like, it's so amazing to see you guys again. And they look at her like she's insane. Yeah, because from their perspective, nothing's changed. And her sister's there and she asks her sister what date it is. And her sister's like, just go look at the calendar, you crazy. So she goes up to the calendar and instead of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, there's like Day, Schnumpfen, Schlefdorf, Schnumpfday, and Flufu. And there's like nine of them in this weird calendar. And instead of months, there's this weird symbol. And she's flicking through it. She's like, what is going on? And she ends up um, fainting and then waking up again back in her dimension, which is why I didn't include the story because it was like a paragraph long. Yeah, right. But that's but, still um, pretty cool. Yeah, like, that's interesting. That you hear stories like that. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be that rare, actually. Um, so look, yeah, look, what happened with you know, Ramin though is that ultimately after he had this experience, he said he came out of it with uh, not paranoia, but pronoia. He said mm. after having this experience, he said it was like everything's this big surprise party waiting for, and so I don't know if he said like implied that when we die, like that's when we really live, but it's like we're waiting for this big fun surprise party where the entire universe is just like out to help us and to try and help us. And I, I kind of like that concept. So, you know, I, I thought I would end it on something that's positive. You know, it ends up that, yeah, absolutely, utilizing these substances can have a really positive outcome. Mm. But like what happened to, to Shane, it can also have a very detrimental outcome as well. So I think it's, you know, beware when using these substances. Yes. Because you just beware. don't know where you can end up and if you're in the wrong dimension. So I'll link to all of it and those short clips. There's a whole heap of them that are all across YouTube that you can listen to people's experiences of, you know, not just uh, DMT, but a whole range of hallucinogenic substances that these people have taken yeah, and had cool. some crazy experiences. So it's like error weird, but interviews. Pretty much, yeah. With yeah. comedians. Yeah, there's like 20, all messed up anyway. 20 something episodes. <laughs> yeah, well, we know with, you know, it's, it's funny with comedians. It's like... Um, these people have suffered from some type of, of trauma, mm. but then that kind of allows them to flourish creatively. And then sometimes it's enhanced by the use of these substances. So yeah, it's all there. Check it out. Well, I, again, I mentioned I had Claudia Watts's... Why do I keep saying Claudia? Is anyone Claudia. actually called Claudia? No, I don't think so. <laughs> What's wrong with my brain? <laughs> Claudia Watts Edge, We Touched Heaven, an international collection of experiences that reached beyond the veil. And it is just that. It's a collection of people's stories. And Tony Woody had one. He was a, a former Navy guy. And he talks about this experience he had when he was nine years old. He was playing near one of their ponds on their property in Texas he was squatting next to the water's edge and he was like 
jabbing yabbies or whatever they have in Texas. <laughs> what do you we'll call yabbies. yabbies in Texas? Uh, crawdads. Yeah, right, there you go. Crawdads and tadpoles. He was poking at them with a stick. And there was all this thick grass behind him. And suddenly all the hairs on the back of his neck just shot up. And he had this feeling that he was in immediate danger. And he heard this loud but calming voice in his head say, be calm and move very slowly and you won't be harmed. Uh Now, as soon as he heard this voice, this clear vision of a large dark snake shot into his mind's eye. He didn't turn around and see anything. He just saw this vision of a snake directly behind him, coiled up to strike, ready to strike. So he followed the instructions. He slowly leaned forward, didn't panic, put his weight on his uh, left hand in the, the edge of the water and then slowly turned to look over his shoulder. And that few inches he had leant forward because of the instruction from the voice saved his life because when he turned around or looked over his shoulder, there's this big, fat, very venomous water moccasin oh. staring at him with these evil dead eyes and he, he just knew it was about to strike. He saw the mouth of the snake slowly open and again, that yeah, voice mongrel things that voice is in his head, run! Yeah. <laughs> and so immediately he bolts away as fast as he could. Uh, he didn't look where he was going. He still had his head looking over his shoulder and he sees the snake leap out at him. The, the mouth comes straight at his arm and Time started to slow down, like the effect you were describing. He could see everything in this surreal slow motion. And he said the attention to detail was incredible. It was like the Matrix. Yeah. He could like roll out of the way as this, this snake with its hypodermic needle-like fangs brushed past his shoulder, but he got uh. out of the way. And again, he hears that powerful command in his head, run. So he bolts away as fast as he can. He said uh, he he dashed across the pond. Like he, he said, Jesus has got yeah, nothing on me. The water. I literally ran across the water, <laughs> barely got wet. But he said the whole time this happened, he had the strange sense that he was being watched. He was being protected. There was this feeling of a presence, he said, that he, he can't explain with words, but he knew it was there. And it felt really familiar. It's something that he, someone that he knew. Now, when he made it back to his house, he checked all over his body to make sure he wasn't bitten. Uh, he couldn't see any bites, so he went outside to play again. Well, you'd <laughs> like know any, about it if you were bitten by a watermark. Yeah, like any kid would do. But for years, he, he wondered, how did he know about that snake? How did he know it was behind him? How did that work? It's like a guardian angel. W- where did the voice come from? What had actually happened that day? So again, he, his name's Tony Woody. He's a retired US Navy chief petty officer, 22 years of military service, and he was an instructor flight engineer on the P-3 Orion aircraft. Um, they're like four-engine, I think they're yeah, propeller, the, propeller craft. Yeah, they're the ones where they've got sometimes got the uh, radar dome thing on the back, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, right. And uh, he had this NDLE when he was in the Navy. What's an NDLE? I've never heard this term before. Apparently, it's a near-death-like experience. It's saying you had an NDE, but you, but you never flatlined. Okay. <laughs> it's like you just got scared, basically. Uh, so in 1982, he was doing this emergency engine outlanding at Naval Air Station Barber's Point in Hawaii. And the aircraft suddenly departed the runway going over 155 miles per hour. And the pilot screwed up. It wasn't him flying. The, the pilot screwed up. And almost immediately after they had 
lifted off, they had to, the pilot reverse thrust and had to land the plane. And they're flying down this runway and right where they're about to land, there's a fire truck there. And basically in his mind is this, we're going to die. We're going to go straight into that fire truck. Like he was feet away from death. And he said, the moment I realized my death was just seconds away was the most helpless, hopeless and terrifying moment I've ever known. It caused such raw, visceral terror, it triggered a spontaneous out-of-body experience. I have heard something similar to that. I've never heard it described as being a near-death-like experience, but people have described being so fearful that they've been catapulted out of their their flesh. He said, I wasn't dead, I wasn't injured, I wasn't unconscious, I wasn't on drugs, I wasn't low on oxygen. I was wide awake doing my job when this happened. And I managed to find his story on YouTube and pull out a bit of audio here where he's describing, uh, I think this is what happened after they just missed this fire truck. Let's take a listen. Everything started changing. It was it went slow motion. It was really bizarre. I had these different perspectives happen. I was, my soul leapt out of my body and now I'm out of the airplane with, looking down on it. I can see everything. I know where the fire trucks are but I'm still in my engineer's seat and I've got that perspective. And then the, the right wingtip went over the front left corner of the fire truck. I could see that guy on the water cannon screaming at the top of his lungs. I couldn't hear him, of course, because I'm in the plane, but I could see him screaming. And so when I, I was out of body, about that time he went into reverse thrust and because we're on asphalt, it's not, planes don't normally travel on. There's a lot of dust and debris out there and somewhere, from somewhere, this Pepsi can came up and shot across the windshield from left to right. It probably took milliseconds, right? But I could, it was slow motion. I'm seeing this thing tumble. Pepsi, I could see, Pepsi, it's a Pepsi can, 12 ounces. I could see that, the fluid coming out of it, brown fluid, and, and then it atomized the fluid as it hit the air, the wind that was hitting it, and the turbulence. and. I started focusing on the little bitty pieces of debris and then all of a sudden I didn't just have my outside perspective and the inside perspective, I became the debris. I was where every tiny piece of debris was, all wrapping and rolling around each other, but I had a 360 degree bubble vision view from every one of these millions of perspectives, the tiniest piece of debris that was in the air, and I'm totally confused. You'd think it would be chaotic right? It, it, it was a bit confusing because I didn't understand what was going on really, but it was, there was this, uh, this sublime perfection going on. Everything was right where it was supposed to be, doing exactly what it was supposed to be doing, exactly when it was supposed to be doing it, and everything was perfect. I That's love that. so cool. I love that description of everything being right where it's supposed to be, like everything's in its perfect spot. And these stories also for me, exhibit the potential of the human being in, in that way. he he's not only seeing slow motion he's not only seeing the pepsi can like in a movie matrix style whizzing past the cockpit and he can read every detail but his consciousness somehow enters the debris that's scattered around the plane and he can see the viewpoint around each tiny particle of debris from a 360-degree angle yeah. and control it and understand it and everything's perfectly crystal clear. He's, he's on, the only confusion is how is this happening, but the actual operation of his senses is so perfectly attuned and so far beyond 
what we experience in our day-to-day consciousness, but it's there. It's this potential of a human being. Well, it's more so as well, I think, that I like how he's describing that everything's perfect. Like you would think a crash and something so chaotic and horrible, you wouldn't consider a crash to be perfect. But if fate exists and the universe has to do things the way it has to do things, Mm. it would be perfect. Well, two days after this aircraft incident, he survived, obviously. He's at home relaxing with his wife and son and this TV show comes on. It's called the That's Incredible. And this episode is about a guy named Leslie Lemke who was totally blind, severely mentally disabled, and he spontaneously and miraculously became a singing savant p- pianist, pianist, though he never had any singing or piano lessons. It's like overnight he got yeah. hit in the head and then all of a sudden he was a maestro. And while uh, he was watching this show... He just thought, what, what a miracle, what a miracle What has occurred to this guy. It's absolutely incredible. And that night before he went to bed, he said a, a little prayer in his head, essentially saying, dear Lord, thank you for letting me see the miracle on TV. It would be nice if you could do something like that for me someday. And this seemed to have a, an unexpected effect. Let's take a listen. And so I went to bed that night and I said a simple prayer of gratitude, thanking God for just genuine gratitude in my heart, letting me see a real miracle. And then I added the words at the end of that prayer and I just said, and Lord, it'd be nice if you could do something like that for me someday. And you don't expect anything. I mean, why would you? You know, it's just a little prayer that lasted maybe 10 seconds in your head. And I went to sleep and uh, sometime in the middle of the night, uh, we call it O Dark 30 in the military. Uh, I don't have any idea what time it was, three or th- in the morning, something like that. All of a sudden, I had an instantaneous shift in consciousness. I didn't go through a tunnel. I didn't die. I didn't do any of that. It was boom. Next thing I know, I'm in a black void and I'm seeing this golden white light, beautiful, magnificent, gigantic pouring out energy and light and profound unconditional love that was hitting me, filling me up, and it was powerful. The power that, and I knew I was in the presence of my creator. I knew it, and the love was unbelievable. Uh, It's infinite power that that love controls, and I knew that if this being did not want me to exist anymore in half a thought, I'd be gone forever. There's more to that experience, but I really like this guy because you can tell how raw the emotion still is from something that occurred in the 80s. Yes. And he breaks down several times in the full clip, but I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, he essentially is obviously humbled before what he believes is is the presence of God. It's It sounds like it's always um, positive. Did you have any depictions of people having a negative experience? This is uh, We Touched Heaven. The yeah, book is so We it's Touched always Heaven. Positive. It's not We Touched Hell. Mm, mm. <laughs> There's I no just, sneaky stories of Satan in here. Look, I like it. I like It's amazing to hear stories like that. And I actually believe that people have had these these experiences. But I think that the universe is a balance. Like, I think you can't have it that it's all... It's all wonderful all the time. Like there's, oh, do you want me to just throw in some horrible stories? Well, you? if you could just balance just to it balance out, it out, out Mr. Yeah, balance. Just, just find a couple of people <laughs> Dude, that have been, you know. Usually I have horrible stories in these segments. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is a breath of fresh air. This is a break from the norm. It is a break from the norm. You're right. Yeah, that is a good point. Uh, then there was the story from Reverend Bill McDonald Jr. 
1967, he's northwest of Saigon and he's he's in the US military, he's in the Vietnam War. Uh, he'd been flying solo missions, uh, supply runs to small encampments for the 1st Infantry Division, he said. And they were on the lookout for large movements of both supplies and troops coming into the sector where he was. Now, his helicopter commander was this brand new major, had just arrived in Vietnam. He was a graduate from uh, West Point. And this guy, when he gave an order, obviously it was expected 100% obedience. Yeah. Uh, he said, we knew he wouldn't be open to any questions or suggestions. His command wasn't a debate. And on this particular morning, they were flying higher in the sky than they were used to, over 800 feet. This was kind of uncomfortable for um, for Bill because they were normally at treetop level and... You know, uh, he said that, that this might not seem to be safer, but it's actually safer because when you're flying at treetop level, you can sneak up on enemy troops before they could see you or hear you. And yep. that eventually with the pilots in Vietnam, they figured that out. But for some reason, this this commander, this new commander from West Point wanted to be higher in the sky, perhaps to get a better view of the terrain. But he said all it was doing was making them this big, fat, slow-moving target. Anyway, they're flying just a kilometre outside of this small hamlet when he spots a group of about 30 people below them who appear to be moving down the road in military formation. And they're all carrying what looks like some kind of weapon on their shoulders. And there's a man in the front who looks like a leader of the group. And they're all dressed in the typical black pyjamas that the Viet Cong would wear. So, And they're, they're close to the Ho Chi Minh Trail, so they're like, this, this is the Viet Cong. It's Charlie. Now, the major, this new guy, immediately says, okay, this is VC troops, and he orders uh, Bill to fire his M60 machine gun from the helicopter on the, the formation below. And obviously an M60, 750 rounds, 7.62 mils of ammo a minute. It's like it would shred them to pink mist in a second, right? And he's got them lined up. He's looking down at this formation. And then Bill said he froze, his finger didn't work. He couldn't pull the trigger. He said, I couldn't get myself to squeeze off a single round. He said, I was overcome with a great apprehension and a feeling that something wasn't right. He said, this deep intuition said, stop, there's something wrong. Now, he's just sitting there on his M60 and the major's like, what are you doing, soldier? That's a direct order. And he's basically threatening to... Um, court martial him later. Yeah, get charges against him and the, he'll be thrown in military prison. Um, and it's, this could be 20 years or more at, at Leavenworth at the military prison there. And he just says to him, look, I, I think we need to fly lower. I want to get a better pass so we can get better ID on the target. And the major turns to the other left door gunner and says, you know, fire on the... And amazingly, the left door gunner also refuses to shoot. He just is like, I'm I'm with Bill. I, we need to go lower. And this major, he's flipping out. He's like, he's talking to the pilot. He's He wants to call in an airstrike because no one's obeying his commands. And amazingly, the pilot says, uh, I think we should fly down lower and get a closer look. They're not enemy so combatants, are they? No one's following his orders. So long story short, they fly down to 100 feet. And this is incredibly dangerous. If it is the Viet Cong, they would just get blown up. Yeah, it's a risk. You know, they're this huge, massive target. But as they get closer, the first clue is that the enemy doesn't scatter when they see the helicopter coming. Yeah. Uh, and when they get even closer, it's painfully obvious that 
It's a group of school children oh, wow. with garden tools. And they're marching in formation because they're school children. Yeah. They're going to the community garden to do some digging. Wow. The leader in black was a priest. And Bill said, look, I got all emotional. I actually felt tears rolling down my face. I realized how close we had come to killing all these innocent young children. Uh, everyone was obviously visibly shaken by the event. But, you know, the, his takeaway was why had myself and my gunner refused to fire? And the only th thing he has is I just went with my feelings. I went with this gut feeling, this intuition. And he said, I quickly learned in Vietnam to never question those intuitive feelings. It seemed that those feelings were greatly heightened in combat and dangerous situations. I learned that day to always listen and trust my inner voice. Yeah, it's funny how you hear that, actually. If you talk to soldiers that have been in actual combat situations, you know, I've heard a couple of them say that it's like, and they're the kind of guys that are really tough, kind of just like down-to-earth kind of guys that wouldn't, you know, indulge in any of this kind of stuff that we talk about. But they're like, whenever you're in that state... It's like you're in the equivalent of the flow. Yeah. It's like intuition is just so powerful and it's actually coming from somewhere else. It's not coming from within. And it's an interesting thing, again, to talk about the potential of the human being in that there are ways of knowing that go beyond logic, right? There's no of course. logic in that situation. He's, no. not, he's not necessarily sitting down and going, okay, we don't know this information. It's just this immediate, there's no thought process. It's this immediate gut knowing. It's intuition. It's, it's, an, it's external intuition. And it's interesting that sometimes uh, the, the, the knowing goes beyond. It transcends that uh, logical process of, of rational thinking. Yes. Uh, and then we have the story from Ken Root. Oh, actually, it's interesting with this guy, Bill, I just mentioned. There's a video of his, which I'll link to in the show notes also, where he had a near-death experience when he was nine. So is there a connection there? Is that why he had this intuition so strongly in the war? Because yeah, maybe. he had that NDE. In his NDE when he was nine, he had some serious illness and he basically uh, died on the hospital bed um, and but was brought back. In his NDE, he saw everything that was going to happen in his future. He got like a life review that hadn't happened yet. <laughs> so he saw himself growing up. He saw himself going through college. He saw himself in the military. I don't know if he saw this specific incident. He saw who he was going to marry and he's nine years old and he's like, sweet. <laughs> he's, the he's all set up. He said, and he said, growing up, as he was going through his life, everything was deja vu. Yeah, yeah. Like he meets his because wife. He's like, oh, deja vu. Because this time is not linear. Like when you have, when you hear people describing these experiences. Like I said with a guy with DMT, like when he could see past lives, future lives. It didn't mm. matter. I mean, we're seeing it from this linear perspective, but it's not. Mm. It's just it's always is at the same time. And then there's the story of Ken Root. Uh, this one's called Outside of Time. It was the early 1970s. He was 17, had just graduated from high school uh, in Chicago. And they had had a guest stay with them from Brazil, one of those you know student transfer oh, things. Yeah. Student exchange. And he had this open invitation from the Brazilian guy's family to go and stay with them when he'd finished school. And he took them up on the offer. He'd never traveled anywhere and certainly hadn't traveled solo. So he spent his entire like end of school summer in Brazil before his college years. And he had this incredible experience, you know, traveling around. But most of the time was just hanging out in, in Sao Paulo um, with, the, with this guy's family. He made a lot of friends, but the problem was they were still at school. Yeah. So he would basically wait around all day <laughs> waiting for them to finish school so they could go out and have fun. They were all into racing. They were into racing overpowered go-karts 
and they'd go on this Interlagos International Speedway track and, you know, fly around there, you know, over 100 miles per hour on the straight. But on the school days when they couldn't go to the racetrack, they used to race their VW Beetles through the streets of the city. And they would practice their high-speed turns in the city. And, you know, that's those... That's a death trap waiting to happen. Must have been, like, up in the mountains, like, uh, initial D style. Yeah, and yeah. they would try and drift around corners. They were basically practicing drifting. And one day, for no logical reason, he said he felt irrationally uncomfortable getting into the car. <laughs> like, normally it's fine. Normally, you just yeah. fly down the mountain. Uh, but he knew not to get in this day. And he told his friends he didn't want to get in with them that day. Now, they called him a pussy, of course, and said, what are you doing? Get in the car. Stop being a coward. So he reluctantly got in the car and they took off. They were doing their usual turns, their high-speed drifting around the corners. But he said on that particular day, he couldn't control his fear like he normally could. He felt this adrenaline increasing moment by moment as if it was building up to something. So... Despite knowing that they would laugh at him, he reached down and buckled his seatbelt. Big no-no. Everyone knows. If you buckle your seatbelt, you're a massive pussy. <laughs> Apparently, this is a thing in most of the world, by the way. <laughs> I don't know if you, you know that. Prevent yourself from flying it through the I, windshield. I've had people tell me that all throughout the Middle East, if if you put if you put your seatbelt on, they think you're some kind of homosexual or something. <laughs> Have you seen some of those Saudi Arabian drifting <laughs> yes, videos? I have. Yeah. I've seen people lose a couple of, uh, what are those things called, what the shakes wear? They've come flying out the window <laughs> yes. with the body with it. Their their body comes out and their leg comes out another window. Yeah, exactly. I've seen those yeah. videos too. Apparently it's a cultural thing. It's, it's just considered uh, unmanly to buckle your seatbelt. Well, you know what? Screw cultural relativism. I would rather survive and be called a homosexual. Well, <laughs> well that's what he did. He didn't care. He, he buckled his seatbelt and they started calling him a massive pussy. Um, but the thing was, as soon as the, the belt clicked, it was like Thor swinging a hammer into a gong, he said. Like the sound of the click mm. triggered this internal resonance and it validated in his mind that something was coming. He said in the instant that he clicked that seatbelt in, his body knew what was coming and he it basically took over and his mind watched passively as his body started to react. So what he started to do was take off his jacket, and he, he doesn't know why he did this, but he put his jacket against the window, like with it draping down to stop the glass, right? Oh, and then, so the glass doesn't hit him. And then he, he grabbed the other, like, middle belt and kind of wrapped that around as well to create, like, a double seatbelt and then somehow hooked his arm inside. Like he, he didn't understand why he was doing this. It's like he was bracing for an airplane to go down. He reached down, like tucked the seat up, pulled himself in and... Do you know what the other option is? Don't get in the car. Yeah, exactly. It's too late for that now. He said, have you ever listened to a bottle filling with water and without looking at it, you can tell by the sound that it's almost full and it's about to overflow? He said, that's what it was like, but instead of sound, it was fear and adrenaline. He was like this bottle that was filling up and it was building up to this moment. And he just braced himself, took a deep breath and closed his eyes as the car started to do a triple roll into busy Brazilian traffic. Now, at the precise instant, the window next to him where he had his jacket exploded yep. and time 
stopped and his fear vanished. There was this complete stillness. And just like the Navy guy describing the Pepsi can flying past the window in Matrix-style slow motion, that's exactly what happened to this guy. He saw the glass, like little bits of glass, floating like he's on the International Space Station in front of his eyes. The glass was tinkling around him, but incredibly slow. And he said the particles moved around like thousands of snails. That's how slow slow. they were. Yeah. He said what caught my attention was how the tinkling sounds they made sounded perfectly normal, which made no sense at all because if you slow down an audio recording, the pitch should change, right? But everything was precise. Everything was perfect. He said listening to the chaos around him while he was suspended in time, like you were describing with uh, the comedian and his mescaline experience, he had so much spare time, he just started asking questions in his mind. He was like, oh, I wonder why time slowed down like this. I wonder what happened to my fear. Isn't it weird that time can be slowed down? Does anything talk to him or he's just in that state talking to himself? He does have a sense that something's telling him... Because when the car started to flip, I forgot to mention this, it was basically a voice saying, you're protected, you're going to be safe. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of the questions was, I wonder who that was talking to me. Am I going to die? This is really weird. Like just this real kind of pondering. He said, I think my mind totally gave up the, the control and stepped aside to ponder these questions while something new opened up in me. And this is like an ability that comes forth. While his eyes were still closed, he could see the glass particles in his mind's eye and he could zoom in on any one of these individual particles of glass going by and look at it from any distance or from any angle and then pan around in this 360 degree remote vision. He says, as I was doing this, I wondered what the outcome of the accident was going to be. And again, like some kind of video game or or sci-fi movie, he, he zooms out from the scene and he sees a ghost-like projection of the car flipping over three times. Oh. He sees everything play out and then he can go and he rewinds it. And he's like, oh, that's weird. And then he plays it again. He's like, pause. And the car's like flipped in mid-flip and frozen in mid-air. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. Rewind. And he does this like four or five times, just watching how the physics work and how everything goes and how the the bystanders are watching, whether anything's going to hit them, what's happening to his buddies in the car. So this isn't just one of those things where time seems to slow down when you've got stressful situations. He's actually completely in control of it. He's actually manipulating his his now supernormal vision and perception of the scene. Yep. Rewinding time, fast-forwarding time, freezing, zooming into objects, rotating around, like he, again, like he's dragging his mouse and rotating the scene of the crash. It's bizarre. And amazingly, he gets bored of it. <laughs> he's like, yeah, okay, this is, I'm bored of this now. Like, I've, re, I've seen that play out, as many, I've spun around every particle, like this is getting boring now. And he's like, all right, uh, play. And <laughs> the accident continues and eventually the car rolls into the busy Sao Paulo street and boom, lands on all four wheels. Clearly he survived. And like a pop, yeah, he's instantly back in his body uh, and he thinks, weird. And the voice in his head says, don't open your eyes yet, just gently brush the glass pieces off your eyelids. Oh, wow. So he does this, he gets out of the car and when he gets steps out into traffic, like obviously he's in shock. But he realizes that the effects from the 
near-death experience, if you can call it that, are still lingering because he starts tapping into the consciousness of everyone who's come out of their cafes and businesses to look at this insane accident. And he taps into the mind of these Brazilian teenagers who have just seen everything. And he taps in and they're like, that was fucking awesome. <laughs> like one kid's like, NASCAR. Like they they, they it's, think it's amazing. And he taps into the mind of this old uh, grandma that's come out. And she's like devastated because her son died in a car accident. Oh, uh, so and he's picking up on that. He starts, immediately his consciousness starts seeing her son's car accident. And then he follows that and he starts following the life of her son that died oh. and seeing how he grew up and what the decisions he made that led to that point. It's Again, it's like the human mind is so powerful that any question that's pondered before thought even enters into the equation, the it's answers there. are given. Yeah. Uh, eventually, he, he doesn't know how he got home. Like, he could speak Portuguese and he was doing quite well in the country, but after the crash, it's like he kind of forgot who he was. He had this weird amnesia. The abilities all left. Um, he believes eventually that some whoever was guiding him through that crash guided him home because the next thing he knew, he was waking up the next day um, in his, uh, you know, not foster parents, but sponsor parents. Yeah. Um, host home, family. The host family home. And they immediately drive him to the hospital. And the three other guys that are in the car... They're just cuts all over their body. Like one guy broke half his ribs. Uh, they were in, you know, like a comedy hospital scene where they're just, every limb is plastered and they're on cables. Yeah. And he walks in, he doesn't have a scratch on him. And they're just, what? how do you not have, what happened to you? We, how do you not have a single cut on you? Because clearly this might be about um, like the elements of guardian angels stepping in or like what we've been talking about, like things happen the way they're supposed to happen. And for whatever reason, he wasn't meant to get injured in that. Mm. But I just found or that killed. fascinating that we keep seeing the time slowing down effect. The the power of the the human consciousness uh, is is really, I mean, we we can't even scratch the surface in our everyday well, functioning. I mean, it's enough that already we can perceive, you know, how time is relative. Like I've always said, you know, remember when you're a kid and here in Australia in summer, you get six weeks of holidays. And I remember being a kid going wow, it's so long. Like, I know, yeah. It's so long. <laughs> yeah. And now as an adult, I'm like, what? A couple of months has passed. Huh? <laughs> How did that happen? And it is. It's because as you get older, the reason why it's like that is because when you're a kid, everything's mm. new and you're absorbing so much that time seems to be slower. When you get older, you absorb less. So there's actually people out there that run courses on how you can actually be more observant and actually cause time to, to slow down for you because these people are getting worried about mm. getting older. So it's a cool concept. But if we can experience that in our daily reality, imagine what's happening when we're in these states. Well, imagine what could happen if you went to make take a dump. Oh, here we go. And you, yep. like you could go into this 3D vision and get a 360-degree view of the turd. No one rotate, needs to see that. rotate around and... <laughs> No one needs to see that. What if you're a German guy and after you do your business, you want to check the um the, <laughs> the health of the stools, the stool shelf. Yeah, and you say, Gunther, let's check the stool shelf. And why have you got Gunther checking your stool with you? That's what they do. That's what well, you got poop buddies that come <laughs> and check your stool for you. Gunther's his doctor. <laughs> and and the, the the result of of Klaus's movement 
is so perfect that both of them immediately enter this altered state of consciousness and they can slow down time. No, that's not happening. Okay, that's so basically happening. this is a story of a a guy that... This happened when he was 32. He's, he's 65 now. I didn't write his name down, actually. We'll just call this a random pooping guy. He went to bed at 10 p.m. as usual, only to abruptly awaken just before midnight. He could feel his body indicating a digestive perch. Oh. And he quickly proceeded to the toilet. While he was in the bathroom, he could feel the energy around him change, he said. He said his hair started to stand up on the back of his head. Uh, he became chilled. And the thought entered his mind, oh boy, what's happening tonight? <laughs> This is the toughest story. <laughs> I can't believe she mentioned it in the introduction. Like, you have all these amazing stories, and you're like, on the toilet, you could have a spiritually transformative experience. Well, it's a unique story, I suppose. Uh, he then goes into, like, he actually starts doing his business and goes into an altered state of consciousness. <laughs> he finds himself in a dark room where this child comes up to him and starts running its fingers through his hair. And he says, at first I ignore this child, but then I, I turn to him and say, what are you doing? I know that you're a spirit. For some reason, he just knows this kid is a ghost. The kid tells him his name. He's 13 years old and what he had died of. And then deeper in the shadows of this room, there's an older man waiting for them. And the boy basically says, let's go. Let's follow this old man. So he gets off his, I don't know if he's still sitting on a toilet, but he- He's out of body out, yeah, away from the toilet. Yeah, he, he follows this old man. And basically, uh, they go into this large auditorium and there's all these balls of light hovering everywhere in the auditorium. And as that he enters, they all realize that he's from the land of the living. He's not a spirit. And they all rush towards him and every single one of them wants to tell him how they died and who they are. Well, that's weird. Like one guy comes up to him and says, dude, dude, you got to help me out. <sighs> You've got to get my pants from the dry cleaners. I, I, I couldn't get... I just put check them in and I, I couldn't check them out. I couldn't get them out. You've got to go get my pants. You're dead. Your pants mean nothing. <laughs> and the other spirit's like, don't listen to that guy. He's been here. Like, he's only been here a couple of hours. He's still very confused. Uh, he was killed while he was riding his motorcycle just after he checked his pants in at the dry cleaner. And he just won't shut up about getting his pants from the dry cleaner. Is don't worry about him. Purgatory? Well, all these people are coming up to him and explaining how they passed away. Like one guy was like, yeah, I, I, I passed away of a heart attack and I've, I think I've been here for a couple of hours. Some other guy comes up and says, I've been here for three days. I demand to see the manager. Uh, and he, he figures out that this is some kind of area for people that have had recent deaths and they need to learn to proceed to higher levels where the rest of the dead are. Right, yeah. Um, they need to learn to rise. And he basically tells them, oh, this is such a wonderful experience coming here and, and seeing all you losers. And then he uh, he's taken to this <laughs> he's taken to this other door that takes him back to the physical realm that they can't get through. They're like, oh, you can't go through there. And he's like, watch me. He walks out and he's back on the shitter. And that's the end of the story. That's, that's it. Steve Marr in Cape Town, <laughs> South Africa. And honestly, 90% of the stories are that kind of caliber. Well, so I was really uh, scraping the battle, the barrel from that one. I don't, <laughs> I so, I don't get it. Yeah, so that's why at the end of the day, I thought I should just include one of these stories from the Hungry Ghosts book from Andy Rotman. Oh, yeah. 
just so we can leave the episode with a, a, non a moral story. story that has nothing to do with toilets. Yeah. Uh, so again, this guy has gone to the ancient Sanskrit to translate these traditional stories, and they all have to do this, the same template. It's basically uh, a disciple of uh, Gautama Buddha, and it's one of his monk disciples runs into a hungry ghost. So one morning, the story starts, one morning, the venerable Mudgalyayana got dressed, took his bowl and and entered for Rajagra for alms. He got his alms, he ate his meal, and after eating, he uh, returned to meditate. And when he started meditating, the venerable Mudgalyayana saw a hungry ghost who looked like a burnt-out tree stump. She was naked and totally covered with hair, with a mouth like the eye of a needle and a stomach like a mountain. She was set ablaze, completely aflame. She was a single fiery mass, a perpetual cremation. Tormented by thirst, she was racked with sensations that were searing, piercing, distressing, agonizing and acute, and she was crying out in pain. She was foul-smelling, really foul-smelling. She looked like shit and was feeding on feces. This is a direct translation. And even those feces, she only procured with great difficulty. I don't know. How does that work? I, I don't <laughs> like, even want to. Is there one on top of a mountain and that. she's got to climb Mount Everest just to get a piece of shit she can eat? <laughs> Upon seeing her, the venerable Mudgalyana Yana was deeply moved and he questioned the hungry ghost. He said, what happened to you? <laughs> what sin did you commit? that you would experience a result such as this. And the, the hungry ghost said, I am a sinner. Ask the blessed one about this matter. He will explain to you the deed that led me to this fate. And the blessed one is obviously Buddha. So the venerable Mahamadagalyayana approaches uh, the Buddha and the Buddha says, come, welcome, where are you coming from? And he says, Buddha, I just... I just came back from a journey through the realm of hungry ghosts and I saw this hungry ghost. She looks like a burned out tree stump, naked, totally covered with hair, mouth like the eye of a needle, stomach like a mountain. She was fully set alight, racked with sensations that were searing, piercing, distressing, agonizing and acute. She was crying out in pain. And when the heavens sent rain on her, it would just fall like a shower of sparks would fall instead of rain. She was foul-smelling, really foul. She, she looked like shit, and she was feeding on feces, and even those she procured with great difficulty. And the Buddha says, Mudgalyayana, that hungry ghost is a sinner. Do you want to hear the deed that led her to this fate? And he's like, yes, yes, pure one. Then listen to this. Concentrate well and closely. I will speak. It's going to be something very lame, isn't it? Long ago in the city of Varanasi, there was a solitary Buddha who had compassion, so an enlightened man, an enlightened God being, but he had uh, compassion for the poor and neglected, uh, and he stayed in, uh, in remote areas. But one day he became afflicted with illness and he entered the city for alms. After a doctor prescribed him a diet of wholesome food, he approached the home of a merchant. The merchant saw him and asked, what happened to you? And do you need anything? He said, yes, I need homemade nutritious food. The merchant then instructed his daughter-in-law to give wholesome food to this noble one. Give, give wholesome food to this clearly holy man. Now his daughter, in her arose a deep meanness. Direct translation. 
She thought, if I give him food today, he's just going to come back again tomorrow. This is just an endless, you know what these people are like, these holy guys coming from the mountain, they want nutritious food. He's just going to come back every day. Every day he's going to be here. So she retreated indoors and filled a bowl with shit. (laughs) (laughs) Then (laughs) Then covered it with food and proceeded to give it to this enlightened holy man. (laughs) Now, the knowledge and insight of the disciples of a solitary Buddha, it doesn't actually work unless they focus their attention. So this holy man was slightly distracted. So only after accepting the bowl of shit did he eventually, and after you could imagine eating a few morsels of it. I wish you had told me this, though, because I could have prepared with some sound bites from the help. (laughs) He'd <laughs> be like, eat my shit. shit <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that movie. Uh, but eventually he realized how bad it smelled and he said, she must have filled it with excrement. Then the great being dumped out his bowl to one side and departed. And the Buddha said, since she performed such a sinful deed, as a result, she is always reborn as a hell being, an animal or a hungry ghost, and she has to always feed on feces. Therefore, Mudgalyayana, work hard to rid yourself of meanness. So isn't the moral of the story, don't feed shit to a holy man? <laughs> That's the thing. I got to the end of this because this is like an ancient Sanskrit, very, very important moral yeah, story. it's a fable. It's a moral fable. But the moral of the story is don't give someone a bowl of shit <laughs> to eat. I just would have thought that would have been instinctual. I was... <laughs> And I got to the end of that and I was like, oh my God, I've been feeding people (laughs) bowls of excrement for years, thinking that it was totally fine. (laughs) And not understanding why you're a burnt out husk. (laughs) Set ablaze. And now I've I've created all this karma. I didn't even realise that giving holy people bowls of steaming poo was somehow a sin. There must be... Because obviously it's a very, very old story. I don't know why I'm even analysing it, but there must be something else to it. There must be something that was going on culturally at the time that they had to create this. The funny thing, like I said, this is a template. So the funny thing about this guy's book, he's like, well, if you go back through the history of these stories, it was like 15,341 tales. And I realised that they're all, most of them at the same time. All giving holy people shit. They just changed the names. Like in the other story, instead of Mudgalyayana, it's Blumdi Dalaryana or something. It's different. And it's the same story. It's like a, a holy man goes to get help and instead of getting what he needs, like in another story, it's medicine. In the other story, he gets a bowl of piss instead. <laughs> it's like, it's just a different disgusting thing every time and it creates this hungry ghost. It's not different. Every time it's the same thing. But um, I think that's a good lesson to take away for this episode. I, good, I think so. Yeah, I think you can take anything from this episode. That's the thing you take away. <laughs> it's a good moral story. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and that is uh, Hungry Ghosts by Andy Rotman, uh, if you want to check that out. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. Uh, We'll link to everything in the show notes, of course, along with those YouTube videos of the weird near-death-like experiences. Uh, Have a great week. What kind of person gives someone a bowl (laughs) of shit? I'm not going to be able to stop thinking about this now. Well, it's not like it's just a bowl of shit. It's got a a nice prepared meal on top of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> I imagine it's like an airline meal. Like she kind of brings out like an foil over the top and <laughs> peels it back at the surprise. It's a shit surprise. Well, this is why Alistair Crowley never reincarnated. He's because he used to feed shit little shit treats to everyone. So he's like a hungry ghost now, covered in hair and smelling like shit. <laughs> that makes yeah, makes total sense. Yep. Karma, see? Yep. All balances out in the end. It really does. And there's your balance for the yep. show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being on Plus. Have a great week and we'll catch you on Friday if you're next MU. See you then. Thank you.